Good morning, everyone. You a little tired this morning? No? Good. Last day at camp kind of makes you maybe a little bit tired. Um, and I don't want you to give up. It's the last day, so I hope you make the most of it. And I just want to say, wow! I hope you are awake this morning! If you weren't awake, you are awake now. I need you to agree with me. I'm not going to stop the energy, but you can't give up on me either. Okay? So I hope you are awake. Some leaders spilt coffee on themselves, I'm sure. <laughs> but in all seriousness, there cannot be anything more exciting than this. When you think to yourself what Psalm 8 says, what is man that you, God, would be mindful of us? And then you think he didn't have to make a way to be saved, but he did through his son. And you think he didn't have to give us the word of God, which tells us about Jesus Christ, but he does. And he didn't have to let you hear this word. Think about that. There are so many people in the world that do not even have a Bible translated into their language, let alone the ability to read it at will. This is the word of the living God. You are privileged. I am privileged to be able to hear from God himself. That is not just a saying that we say. It's God's word. When you read it, you hear from God. So I hope you're excited. I hope you are awake because you are going to hear from the living God in his word. The last couple days, we, spoke, we have spoken about how if you see Christ as worthy, you will change. It produces change. You don't even have to uh, conjure that up in your own strength. It just happens. Because when you see Christ as worthy and you've bowed the knee, everything changes. Not perfectly, but immediately and ongoing. First, or two days ago, I guess, we talked about how, we talked about four things, how your affections are changed. You begin to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. You have a new purpose, and your pursuit is different than it was before. It used to be for yourself. Now it is for God. You have a new perspective that doesn't live for this world. You now see you've had your eyes opened. This world fades away, but you live for Christ and his eternal kingdom. And that also produces a change in attitude and demeanor. Yesterday, we spoke about how all of those things lead to a change in your thoughts. You think about things differently than you did before, and you think about different things. But it also produces not just a change in your thought life, but in your actions. And again, we've spoken of this over and over again. I want you to be reminded, these things do not justify you. They do not save you, but they are the mark of one who is saved. Christ alone and his work on the cross and his blood for you saves. But these works are produced by one who sees Christ, or, or produced in one who sees Christ as worthy Today, we are going to dive into the seventh aspect of change. And this is a broad aspect, but 
You cannot see Christ as worthy. You cannot see him as worthy and experience change in affections, change in thoughts, change in actions, and not have it affect every relationship in your life. It shouldn't surprise you that if your thoughts change and your actions change, that your relationships change. And what I mean by relationship is just, I mean, uh, a human relationship with someone. Now, this will impact your relationships in plenty of ways. It may cost you in the short term, but it is altogether worth it because you are called to live for God. The first relationship that is changed often in your stage of life because you are still in the home is your relationship between you and your parents. Before you were saved, you may have been the boss in your home. You may have saw yourself as the boss. You may have tried to be the boss tried to do whatever you could to manipulate your parents to do what you want. And you don't have to be trained in the art of how to manipulate your parents. You try your best to get them to serve you. You maybe have had a little bit of respect for them, but normally that respect only comes when they give you something you want. Even if outwardly, you obeyed inwardly when you're lost, you often rebel. You were a complainer with every idea that they would present to you, unless it served you. Because when you see the world as the world revolves around you, you love your parents when they serve you, you despise them when they don't. Maybe even sometimes you wished you had different parents, constantly grading them based upon this. How happy can they make me? Do you see a consistent theme here? Self, self, me, me, me. When you are the king and lord of your own life, your parents are only good if they serve you. You loved self far more than anything else, far more than your parents, and far more than Christ. And your love for self expresses itself in the way you act. Right? That's what we've been talking about. A true love for someone expresses itself in the way the actions go forth. I can say the phrase, I love my wife, all I would like to say it. I can make it sound really nice. But if I do not act in such a way that shows love to my wife, it is empty words. You can say you love Christ, but if that does not produce actions, it is mere words. Because you now love Christ, hopefully many of you in this room have seen Christ as worthy, and you have bowed the knee, maybe even this week. Your relationship with your parents will never be the same. At least it shouldn't be. Oftentimes, we're quick to say, oh, my relationships with my peers will change, but <laughs> my parents, they, they still need to serve me, right? If you love God, you will obey God. That's what we said, right? If you love me, or if you want to know if you love God, you will keep his commands. Here is his command for you. And believers, you better listen. Because if you see him as worthy, you can't pick and choose which commands you want to submit to. You submit to every command. Again, not perfectly, but that is your aim. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 says this. Children, 
Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. I want you to hear that again because this is no secret why God in his wisdom worded it this way. Children, obey your parents. That is the external. Honor your parents. That is the internal. Do you see how there's no way to wiggle around this? Not that you should want to, because as a Christian, you should want to obey. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That means disobeying your parents is wrong. Honor your father and mother. Notice what is lacking or excluded in this command. There's no conditional phrase that says, Obey your parents and honor them if you feel like it. Or if they are good parents. Or if their life is consistent with what they say. Sometimes you'll hear the excuse, well, I don't need to obey because they don't even obey that rule. Is there any condition given to this command? You're not called to seek out your parents as whether or not they're hypocrites or not. The only way you are not supposed to obey is if they command you to sin. Obviously. You serve Christ as your king. If they command you or tell you to do something anti-Christ, you obey Christ. But otherwise, you are called to obey and honor your parents. You may say, well, my parents aren't good parents, though. They're not godly parents. Do I really need to obey? Do you see any condition added here? Obey only the godly ones? Honor only the godly ones? You may say, well, they're unfair. Well, does this give you the grounds to disobey? My question to you would be this. Do you determine what is right and what's wrong? Or does God? Because sure, if you determine what's right and what's wrong, then sure, act however you want. But if you see Christ as worthy, he determines what is good, right, and true. You might be wondering, what's God's will for my life in this stage of life that I'm in? You want to know what God's will is? Obey his commands. You want to know what your command is in relation to your parents? Obey and honor them. You see, this adds value, actually, and meaning to obeying and honor your parents. You know why? Because you who say you love Christ, when you obey your parents, when you honor them, you are obeying Christ. Do you see how that adds so much more meaning to when your parents say, go clean your room? It shouldn't be a process that says, wow, do I really feel like it? Can I just tell them I'm tired? Can I ask for it later or whatever? It should be, this is an opportunity to obey God. This is why there is no such thing as a little mundane decision in your life. Because you're either obeying God or disobeying God. When you obey your parents, you honor God. And you should want to honor God, right? And I would challenge you who really struggle with this, because maybe your parents aren't in the faith. Maybe they are not objectively good parents do you realize how much worship you give to God when you obey your parents when they are sinful? Do you realize the depth of your submission to God when you still obey even when they don't obey what they say? It's easy or easier to obey good parents, sure. But you worship God especially when you submit even when it's hard even when they're unfair or unjust. Because you see Christ as worthy. 
Do you obey and honor your parents? You who profess Christ and want to submit to him, if you aren't willing to change the way you even relate to your parents, you have not seen him as worthy. For the believer, it is a joy and honor to obey, not because they are inherently worth it, but because Christ is worthy. And you might say, well, should I even obey when no one sees? (laughs) God always sees, right? When you obey and no one else sees, God sees and is pleased. And the opposite is also true. You might live a very good external life amongst your peers, but at home, you're a rebellious son or daughter. And you think, at least because my church doesn't see, at least because my friends don't see, I'm safe. If God sees all, he sees all. Right? You cannot hide from him. Again, this is a very basic relationship, yes, but you cannot see Christ as worthy and not have that affect your relationship with your parents. Secondly, it affects your relationship with all other authority figures. The government. This is a hot topic. But let's read what the Bible has to say, not what your favorite talking head on a radio has to say. Romans 13, 1 through 2 says this, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Why, Paul? Why? For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. You might say, well, even the bad ones? Yeah! Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Once again, you do not see any condition to let you off the hook if you don't like who's in governing authority. You don't like it? Are you called to rebel? No. Does this mean you have to approve of everything? No. Of course not. When a governing body exalts sin, you should reject that. But that does not give you the grounds to rebel. Because there is no authority except from God. You should ask yourself, do you steal or break the law in some way? If you did before, then now as a Christian, you must not. But not only your governing authorities, Titus 3.1 says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. This trickles down in your life. There is no authority except that from God. Professing Christian, maybe consider this, has your behavior in the classroom changed? Some of you are homeschooled, so the first point remains the same. Obey and honor your parents, right? But for those who who go to class, are you respectful to your teacher? Do you bear the fruit of the Spirit in your response to them, in your tone, in your attitude? Do you honor them and show them kindness even in the way you speak about them? The Christian wants to always practice Christ-like holiness, regardless of the situation. But you are called to submit to your authorities. Not only just in the classroom with your teachers per se, but church leaders. Do you resent your spiritual authorities? And this is hard, right? Because are spiritual authorities perfect? Are they? No. Sure, they try, but they're not. And you have maybe have seen a pastor or somebody in a position of authority do something wrong. Does that 
give you grounds to not obey when you are in or under their authority? No. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. This is why you must be very careful what church you knit yourself to. You're called to obey your authorities. It should matter what church you go to. Who are these authorities? Do they actually want to watch over your souls or do they care about something else? But if you find yourself in a biblical church where the leaders want to do this, you're called to submit, not because they are worthy of it, but because Christ is worthy. They are imperfect men, but God sees. They will be judged for what they do. You will be judged for what you do. And if God says for you to do something, believer, you should want to do it. The problem lies when God says for us to do something that we don't want to do naturally. Then you have a decision to make. Then you will really see if Christ is worthy to you. Some of you have jobs, right? Your employers. You think your relationship with your employer is the same if you know Christ is worthy? It should not be. Obviously, you're free to leave. If you find yourself in a job that is leading you into sin, you're free to leave. But while you are there, you are called to produce fruit of the Spirit. You are called to be a light. You should be a hard worker. Colossians 3.23 says this, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. The Christian should be the hardest worker because they're not working for an employer. They're working for God. You show me a Christian worker who is lazy and I will show you one who's lost sight of God because they're not working heartily for the Lord. Does not mean you're not saved, but it does mean you need to see the cross again. You see, I know these relationships might seem basic, but this call to live for Christ is a call to deny yourself in everything, pick up your cross, and follow God. You say you only want to live like a Christian at church, you haven't seen Christ. That's not following Christ. Following Christ is laying it all down, submitting every thought and every deed to Him. Thirdly, it's not just your relationship with your parents or your other authorities that change, but even your siblings. Sometimes, and here's the truth, and I say this from experience, sometimes Christian people love to say amen when they hear a command that says this, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And we take that command and we say amen and we say, except for our siblings, because they annoy me, because they take attention from me, because I have to share with them the call to follow Christ is comprehensive. It is exhaustive. It is in every relationship. That command you are supposed to follow even towards your siblings. Love one another even as I have loved you. Do you see the weight of that call? Through the first four sessions, I pray that you have seen the depth of the love of God for you. That he, though perfect, gave his life for you. 
That's the love you're called to love others with. It is not conditional. It is completely unconditional. Not only is it selfish and ungodly to not practice this towards your siblings even, but you fail to consider the blessing of your siblings God is sovereign even in who he chooses to be your sibling. When you don't love him, you're rebelling against God. You're not being grateful. You claim to love Christ. Do you love your siblings? How about this? Do you love your peers? I'm talking classmates, I'm talking in youth group, I'm talking everybody else, lost or saved. That command doesn't say to just love the good ones. In fact, a little bit later, we're going to talk about how God commands you to love even your enemies. But Galatians 6.10 says this, for you believer, you should want to know what the word of God says, right? So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. That is exhaustive. That is everyone. You don't have the right to not love someone else. I don't care what they have done to you. I don't care how they have treated you. If that conditional love was the way Christ loved us, we would never be saved. If Christ was waiting for us to be worthy of being saving, worthy of his love, no one would be saved. This is the love you are called to love with unconditional love as Christ has loved you. How about your friendships? Fifthly, your friendships will be changed. Your friendships, by the way, can be such a force for good or a terrible force for evil. It's no secret why the Bible speaks about these things in speaking of those who build one another up. Good friendships should produce iron sharpening iron. It should produce growth in both parties. It's also no secret why 1 Corinthians 15.33 is also true. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Before you were in Christ, before you saw him as worthy, it didn't matter who your friends were. You probably just thought, I just want the most amount of friends as possible. It didn't matter. You didn't have a criteria for any sort of friendship. But now that you are in Christ, your friendships are called to be different Your friendships will change. Your current ones will change. And who your friends are may also change. Now that you desire to live for Christ, you are drawn to those, or you should be drawn to those who want to do the same. That does not mean you cannot be friends with someone who is lost. I have many friends that are lost, but my friendship with them is much different than my friendship with my Christian friends. A friendship with one who is lost can only take you so far. You must be watchful lest you fall into temptation yourself. You say you want to obey Jesus and live a holy life? You must not have friendships that produce worldliness and sin. 
And you want to know if a friendship of yours is producing worldliness and sin? Ask yourself this question. Is my friendship with so-and-so leading me into increased temptation? Is my friendship with so-and-so leading me into sin? You must separate yourself if that is the case. But, believer, be careful how you do that. That does not mean you turn around and treat them wickedly. That does not mean all of a sudden you ignore them. That does not mean that gives you a right to be unkind. We've just read your call to love all people. But you must separate yourself to some extent lest you too be led astray. You must be watchful and selective with your friends. That's not being judgmental. That's being wise. Not only must you be watchful and selective, but you too must learn to be a good friend. You want good friends? Are you a good friend? Philippians 2 verse 3 says this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That hurts, doesn't it? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Philippians 2 goes on to say, where that type of love and obedience comes from, it comes from Christ. Hebrews 10, 24 says this, let us believers consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I want you to ask yourself that. Do you consider how to stimulate someone else to love and good deeds? Or do you often consider how to stimulate lusts and deeds of the flesh? A good friend aims for this. A good friend does not lead someone into something God hates. Did you hear that? A good friend does not lead you into something God hates. You might say, well, they're really nice. Sure, that's great. If they're leading you into something God hates, you must separate. Do you lead others into sin? You should reject that, repent, and change because Christ is worthy of that. I want to tell you an example in my own life. I won't use specific names, but I remember one of my um, best friends growing up. I remember the relationship we had. Oftentimes, before I was a Christian, we would have conversations that would ignite lusts in one another. After seeing Christ, years after I saw Christ, I realized what type of a friend I was to him. I went back to him and begged for his forgiveness because I saw that I was leading someone with my actions towards hell, not the cross. Is it just unbelievers that are capable of doing that? No. Believers sometimes lead others towards hell instead of the cross. I hope you have a relationship with your friends where you can go to them and beg for their forgiveness. And I also hope you have a relationship with your friends that if they were to come to you and ask you for forgiveness, that it wouldn't even be a question that you would extend forgiveness. 
Not because they deserve it, but because Christ has loved you so greatly. He has forgiven you of so much. How could you not forgive someone? Good friends are kind, loving, and encouraging, yes. But they also call out sin in each other's lives. They hold each other accountable. They want you to follow Jesus. If you haven't talked about this with who you call your close friends, I want you to talk about this with them. I want you to tell them if you really mean it, if you are serious about following God and you believe you have friends that also want the same, go to them and say, if I walk off the path, please call me back. If you see me heading for the cliff of sin, please call me back. Don't let me go. You say, well, I'm not really a confrontational person. That's not being confrontational. That is loving. And by the way, you as a Christian are going to have to get used to having difficult conversations. It is often the most difficult conversations that must be had. If you want someone to follow Jesus and you want to follow Jesus, do not be afraid to have an agreement with each other that says, if you see me veering, don't be afraid to call me out. Yeah, it will hurt in the moment, but it will prevent you from so much more pain. And it may just prevent you from an eternity of pain. You see, your friendships don't look the same. They can't look the same. You're not the same. But it's not just your friendships. It's also your relationship with the opposite sex. Your boyfriend or girlfriend relationship that you have cannot be unaltered by Christ being worthy. You know, of course, a command that says, do not be unequally yoked. That doesn't only apply to marriage, by the way. That also applies to friendships like we just talked about. If you knit yourself, if you yoke yourself to another person that's an unbeliever and you're a believer, you're not going to get anywhere. You're going to be dragged down. That same thing is true of your boyfriend or girlfriend relationship. Any dating or courting or whatever that happens should have the eyes on the end goal of considering marriage. If you would never consider them a good candidate for marriage, you should never pursue them. You shouldn't date someone that you wouldn't see as pleasing to God if you married them. Any unbeliever, I want you believer to hear this, any unbeliever is immediately not a good candidate. You might say, well, I really, I really love this person. I want to win them. Don't justify your own lusts. Don't mess around with this. Don't presume upon God. You're not God. You can't save them. You weren't saved by yourself. Don't presume that you could save so-and-so. They are not a good candidate for marriage because that would be in direct violation of being uh, the command to not be unequally yoked. You see how following Christ, there's a cost, right? Immediately, right? It's like the guess who game. You know, if I said, is he lost? You would put all those down. They're not a candidate anymore. I know that sounds silly, but they can't be 
Because to, be, to marry them would be to be in violation of God's command. So many times people mistake falling in love for just sinful lust. And here I want, I want you to really consider this. Those who see Christ as worthy, even in their, who, who they pursue romantically, if you sense, by the way, it is not sinful to just have a natural romantic drawing towards someone. That happens, right? You can't help that. But if you sense yourself having a romantic drawing and affection towards one who is lost, pray that God would remove it. That is not unloving towards the other person. It has nothing to do with the other person. It has everything to do with who your Lord is. Just like we would say, if a lustful thought pops into your mind, pray that God would remove it because that's sinning against God. If you feel yourself drawn towards someone who is lost, pray that God would remove it because that's not pleasing to him. You might say, well, wow, that's being legalistic, isn't it? That's being too harsh. I heard God is a God of love. Why are you being so restricting? Well, is God being too harsh when he gives you commands that prevent you from pain and link you to joy? Is that God being harsh or is that God being kind? It's being kind, of course. That's not being harsh. That's God being loving to you. To tell you this, if you follow this path, you will receive pain. But if you follow me, though it may cost you in the short term, it will produce joy unimaginable. It's for your good. Well, you might say, well, it doesn't feel like that. Well, my friend, inform your feelings. God is superior to your feelings. Inform your feelings. Inform your emotions. Inform your affections. This is why you must be in God's word. It is not legalistic to say, read your Bible. If I said, read your Bible, and you be saved by reading your Bible, that's legalism. But we say read your Bible because you often need to inform yourself about what's right. And by the way, if the sin is wrong, then the path to sin is wrong. If the sin of being, being unequally yoked is wrong, then the path, the dating, is wrong also. If you say, well, it's sinful if I were to enter the strip club, but you keep walking by the strip club all the time, that's also wrong. What are you doing? You're trying to ignite the lusts of the flesh. That's what you do when you date someone that is not saved. You're almost wanting to put yourself in a position where the lusts of the flesh are ignited. Quench that flame. Pray that God would quench it. You know, the Israelites were commanded not to marry the foreign Canaanite women. Why? Because they weren't beautiful? Because they weren't attractive or desirable? No. It was because they would lead them into serving their gods. You want to read a good example of that? Just consider the life of Solomon. Solomon, who though wise in some ways, made very foolish decisions. And he was led astray by his godless wives. Are you mightier than Solomon? I don't know, but it doesn't really matter if you think so or not. Don't do it. But just in case you think that's the only way it affects your boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, not being unequally yoked, it's not. Even if you are equally yoked, your relationship is not the same. Your relationship should honor 
Christ. It's not enough. The only checkbox, sometimes this happens in Christian circles, where the only criteria is that they profess to be a Christian. And therefore, just by some sort of passive infusion, the relationship is now righteous. That as long as they're a Christian, I am inherently living a holy relationship. That is not true. That relationship must not look like the world. Just because a man and a woman that are in a relationship that profess to be Christians doesn't mean they're not susceptible to sin. But not only that, just because it's two Christians in a relationship doesn't make it godly. And perhaps the greatest temptation in any romantic relationship is sexual immorality. And I'm not even talking just sex outside of marriage. I'm talking about every sort of sexual activity outside of God's design, which is in marriage. We read this one verse yesterday, but I want to read three verses, two more verses from it. First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. We read verse 3 uh, uh, yesterday or the day, day before. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5 says this, For this is the will of God. If God was here this moment and he was delivering a command to you, that's what it's saying. This is the will of God, your sanctification, your growth in holiness. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know, know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Listen to this. Not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. This passage is so important because it clearly reveals God's will for your life, yes, but it also compares and contrasts the actions of a believer and those who do not know God. Lost people operate in lustful and sinful passion that is dishonoring to God. The believer ought not to be that way. You should pursue holiness. Do you see how this would drastically change a relationship? You might say Christ is Savior and Lord, but your relationship is filled with lustful passion. You're living like one who doesn't know God. Repent of that. This is your calling to put off the deeds of the flesh and put on the deeds of the Spirit. Young person, the reason why we have to teach on these things, by the way, sex should not be a taboo subject never talked about. The world talks about it all the time. You're being informed about it all the time. You need to see what the Word of God has to say about it. The world encourages you, says it's perfectly okay and normal to engage in premarital sexual activity. In fact, there's such pressure put on people that don't, as if they're lacking in some way, or so sheltered they can't see it. It is dishonoring to God and to be rejected. You say, well, I plan on, because we're equally yoked, well, I plan on getting married anyway. Does it really matter? Absolutely it does. One again, you've caught yourself presuming. You don't know you're going to marry that person. And even if you did, even if God said you will marry that person, you are still currently outside the realm of marriage where it is not appropriate and not good. It is still sin. And you can be assured of this. If you don't honor God in your dating, you're unlikely to honor God in your marriage. People are so surprised sometimes when they get married based upon these physical lusts and then their marriage deteriorates. Those things can't last. You need to look at the heart. I can say this without a shadow of a doubt. I see my wife as more beautiful today than I did on our wedding day. 
has nothing to do with age has nothing to do with what the world would perceive as external beauty, has everything to do with her character. That lasts. That makes me see her as beautiful. If your first reason of why you are drawn to somebody romantically is because they're attractive, that should not be it. Yes, you're allowed to be attracted, okay? You're allowed to be, you should be. But that cannot be preeminent. If you marry because of that, you will only stay married as long as she has that or he has that. And when that goes away, you're going to look for something else. Be careful with physical touch. Some of you feel the pressure to do that because that's just what you do when you're in a relationship. But I want to ask you a question. Since when is following Christ the normal thing? Since when is following Christ just what you do? Since when is following Christ looking like the world? And I'm not making a blatant statement. You know in your heart but you may scoff if, if I told you, hey, here's a couple up here. Here's a couple up here that they've been dating for a long time. They haven't held hands. They haven't hugged. They haven't kissed. They're waiting for marriage. So many of you would laugh in your heart. So many of you would say, well, they're missing out. Losers. If they made that decision because they want to be so careful that they want to make sure they honor God above all else. By the way, I'm not making a rule for that. I'm saying if somebody decides that because they love God more, you should not laugh at them. You should say, I want to be more like that. What can I lay down to make sure I'm following God? You say they're missing out. No, they're not. Those that wait for marriage unhindered by previous sexual sin have it the best. Because it's God's design and God's design is best. I'm not making rules for you, people. But I am asking you, what are you not willing to lay down for the sake of Christ? Because that will expose an idol in your heart. You know when physical touch leads you into sin. You know it. I was talking to Hayward the other night. He said something very good. He said, if you're asking where the line is, you've probably already crossed it. Hayward, you're allowed to say amen to that because you said it. Amen. <laughs> but guys, it's not just in your sexual purity, yes, you should want to put off those things. Put on purity because you love God. But it's not just that aspect that must change. Because sometimes you may not do those sexual things, but instead you elevate your significant other to the status of worship in your heart. You base your worth and your identity on who you are with. Subtly it happens. It doesn't start that way. But over time, if you're not careful, Christ, that was worthy to you, will be slowly removed from the pedestal of worship and you will place whoever you are with on the pedestal of worship. By the way, godly couples should make a habit of repenting to one another. Just like I talked about with friendships, same is true of godly couples. If you feel embarrassed to repent to them while you're dating, it's not going to happen when you're married. What are you doing? Why are you pretending that you're perfect? You're not, but you serve a perfect God. So when you sense in your heart that you have elevated, because this is so natural to us, right? 
even as believers, we're constantly making idols. When that happens, you go to them and say, I've made an idol of you. Please forgive me. You see, the believer does not find their value, worth, identity, or happiness in any other person but alone in Jesus Christ. And you have to think of every decision you make, not just in a guy-girl relationship, but in a friendship, in every sort of relationship you have. It's a worship decision when you choose to sin or not. It's a worship decision. You either choose to worship God and obey, or you worship yourself or someone else and disobey. This is why you should also be very careful who you pursue romantically. Pursue someone who will not make you their everything because Christ is their everything. You might say, well, that's not what my romance novel tells me. That's not what my movie tells me. That's not what the culture tells me. The culture tells me, find someone who will make you their everything. That is not your desire as a Christian. You cannot save your spouse. You are not their everything. You were never designed to be. Find someone whose everything is Christ. A godly, romantic relationship is not just about not sinning, but also about the ways in which you edify and build up. Do you encourage your significant other to grow in holiness? This is the mark of a godly relationship. Oftentimes, a good barometer or test of your relationship is since the day you got together, started dating, have you grown closer to God or further away? Just like we said with the first session, do not lie to yourself about this. We love to lie to ourselves. We love to say, because you start to think of the consequences. Wait, if they're leading me further, I don't know if I should be with them and I don't know if I'm not ready to break up with them and I'm not ready. Stop thinking that way. Follow God. There has never been one person that has followed God and regretted it. It may seem difficult in the moment. You will face things in life where you do not want to worship God. But there has never been a moment in my life where I've chosen to follow the Lord, where I feel worse about it after. Rather, the opposite is true. And I can say this without a doubt. There has never been a time where I have disobeyed God, where I have not been worse off for it. Guys, if your faith in Christ hasn't or doesn't impact the way you think about guy-girl relationships or the way you act in them, you need to ask why. And please, please, I hope you hear my heart in this. I'm not telling you this because I want to take away your joy. I'm telling you this because I want you to have joy. Do you see the difference? I don't, I don't want your joy to be taken away But I'm telling you, if you live a certain way, it will be. God, and this is not my wisdom. My wisdom you could throw out the door. I'm talking from God's word. He loves you, wants you to follow him, not because he wants you to not have pleasure, not have joy, but because he knows you will only ever find joy in him. You were created with that need. The last relationship I want us to consider, and it is not, these are not exhaustive. There's other relationships I haven't got to or, or can't think of, but your enemies your relationship with your enemies change. 
Luke 6, 27 through 28 says this, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Stop right there. That alone is much different than you were. You used to operate based upon the condition of how somebody treated you. When they did something against you, you marked it, you stored it away, you blacklisted them. You said, never again will I trust them. Never again will I treat them the same way because of something they did against me. Jesus says, but I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. A few verses later, he says, but love your enemies and do good, lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he himself is kind and grateful to evil men. There's your reason, there's your why. You want to know why you're called to love your enemies? Because you were an enemy of God. Verse 36 says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. You show me someone who doesn't want to love their enemies, doesn't want to extend for forgiveness. I, have, I can show you somebody who doesn't see the cross. Because on the cross, you see the most seemingly unjust thing happen. Perfect God, the creator, dying for his enemies. You should love your enemies not because it's easy or comes natural, but because God has so loved you, his enemy. God himself is kind and to ungrateful and evil men. That is your call. You are called to live like Christ. Also, keep in mind, you should want to win people to Christ, yes? Love those who hate you, and you will show them a love they cannot comprehend. You will see. You will start to see. You love your enemies with a love so intense that they don't, it bothers them. You will find this. The lost world will begin to be bothered by it. Stop loving me! Because they know they're unworthy of it. And they will begin to look and see something is different. Something is different about this young man or young woman. And it's Christ in you. The point of even talking about this is this, guys. When you see Christ as worthy, it affects everything. Every relationship is changed. You have new affections, a new pursuit, new perspective, new demeanor, new thoughts, new actions, and therefore your relationships look different. And I know this may be overwhelming to even think about it. You should remember at this moment right now, it is not by your strength. It's by the Holy Spirit in you. Do not doubt the Holy Spirit, what he can do in your life I am not saying every relationship changes perfectly overnight. It doesn't. But when you rebel against your parents, you'll feel that sting. When you mistreat someone, you will feel that sting because you now have the spirit within you convicting you. Every relationship is not immediately perfect or without sin, but it is different. And it will ongoingly be different. This is why it's a radical call to see Christ as worthy. It's a radical call. If you want to hold on to something in your life, you won't follow Christ. If you want to give the 99% and hold back the 1%, you're not ready. But if you see him as totally worthy you will change. Not because, we've got to keep reminding ourselves of this, not because that is the way to your salvation, but it's because you are saved. Because you have seen his work for you on the cross. You cannot add any works to Christ. That's why he said it is finished. finished. 
You don't add anything. But now that you have seen the fact that it is finished, your sins have been paid for, you've been given Christ's righteousness, you want to live for Him. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So is He worthy of your whole life? He is. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray that you would allow these students to see the love that God has for them. Help them to not see these commands as burdensome, as if they steal joy. They do not. They produce joy. Please help these students. They are faced with so many lies on a daily basis. Please help them to stay close to your truth. Protect them. Guide them. Show them your son. May they never tire of looking at your work on the cross for them. And I pray that these students would know that every leader in this room and that I, I love them. We only say these hard, difficult things because we do. It would be much easier to teach a different lesson. But Lord, we see you as worthy, not just of some parts of our life, but all of our life. So help us, Lord, in this, we pray. Amen.